I think the, the sort of like enlightened point that people want you to come to is we should just stop telling stories about the Regency and aristocrats mm-hmm. and like fancy rich people, but like, no, <laughs> that's so silly. I kind of am like, no, like, I'm sorry. If rich people are good for anything, it needs to be entertaining me. Yeah, like, right, exactly. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Truths Universally Acknowledged, a podcast about dot, dot, dot. (laughs) How the 19th century never actually ended. (laughs) The long 19th century, as Becky was saying. Yeah, and and we talk about Regency, we talk about romance, we were talking about the courtship, and now we're talking about all kinds of things, including Including Bridgerton. Bridgerton, which is what we'll be talking about today. I'm Molly Curran. I'm Emma Soberano. And as Emma hinted, we do have a very special guest today. Back by popular demand. No one asked for this. <laughs> Thanks for letting me back. <laughs> I'm Becky Hickson. Yes, our adaptation expert, Becky Hickson. That's Hickson. <laughs> Actually, you know what? I used to say that I had like a little lisp when I was younger and I could never say my last name right. It was very embarrassing. Oh, that's cute. When I was a kid, I thought that um, accents were part of pronunciation. So I, like, tried to get everyone to pronounce my last name with a Mexican accent, oh. and I was like, no, you're saying it wrong. <laughs> I mean, arguably, I don't know, I think name, names are, uh, it's questionable. On that. Yeah. Okay, so let's just start, like I said, we're talking about Bridgerton, and we're going to be talking about Bridgerton for a couple of episodes. Yeah, this is a special Bridgerton series. Um, but for now, we're just going to talk a little bit about, like, the premise of Bridgerton. What is it? How did it become this, like, massive TV show? Where Cultural did it phenomenon. start? Exactly. Yeah. Many of you probably already know this, but Bridgerton was not originally a TV series, but was, in fact, a series of books. The The Bridgerton, they, I think it was called The Bridgertons, was the, the series of books by Julia Quinn. They're Regency romance, which means it's romance set at the end of the 18th early 19th century i yes. think in the case of bridgerton it's early 19th yes the the premise of the books is you have eight siblings named alphabetically so you have <laughs> anthony benedict colin daphne eloise francesca gregory and hyacinth i would like to note that molly has those written in front of her she didn't just remember them yes. off the top of her I head could've. she's not that but <laughs> yeah. it, there would have been some more pausing um, i would have clapped if you had and each of these siblings gets a book and it roughly goes from the oldest sibling to the youngest though there are some exceptions yeah. namely the very first book in the series the duke and i which came out in the year 2000 is about daphne and the final book in the series on the way to the wedding which came out in 2006 is about gregory note the dates right of publication so a lot has happened in the past 20 little under 20 years yes. in the case of some of the books so yes when when the first season came out It was already an adaptation of a book that was 20 years old, which in normal literature times maybe isn't that significant. In romance literature times is pretty big. Well, especially for like just in general a contemporary, like an adaptation of a contemporary novel, I think, is a little different. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Becky, but like (laughs) it feels like because it was somewhat recent, the kind of changes 
in how we're understanding some of like the politics of the novel, for example, yes. uh, and the politics of the show feel particularly present. Mm-hmm. You know, and this was a critique that was lodged against both the show and the book, but I think the book in particular, The Duke and I is a outdated novel. It is a mm-hmm. uh, capital P problematic. <laughs> it's not super representative of where a lot of romance is at today. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a reason that a lot of people who liked the show tried to go read the books and were like, um, I don't know if I'm into this. There's yeah. that, right, and the picture on the cover implied it was an interracial romance, which yes. is such yeah. an interesting... Yeah. So, so, spoiler alert, everyone in the books is white. And we know this for sure because Julia Quinn has said that she could never write a romance with people of color because she wants them to have a happy ending. Oh, oh my God. God, she said that? Something like that. Oh, boy. Jeez. Okay. Um. Well, anyway, so, like, there are... We're already getting into a preview of some of the yes. things that we're going to talk about this episode. Um, so. so let me say a few more things about the the books. Yes, written by Julia Quinn, who continues to write books. She has published, I think, over 20 romance novels, all historical, I believe. Um, she has recently come out with a prequel series to the Bridgertons, the first <laughs> of which is called Because of Miss Bridgerton. It's about the, I don't know, some family that are neighbors to the Bridgertons. Okay. It's, a, it's Georgian set. Um, oh, interesting. And I have read all of the Bridgerton books um, in the original eight. I haven't read any. There are some spinoffs and offshoots. Mm-hmm. and But of the original eight books, I've read them all. Um, I've read two other books by her, one called Ten Things I Love About You and one called The Secret Diaries of Miss Miranda Cheever. That and reminds me of that. All like, fine. Yeah. I feel like both of those titles are plays off of other oh, titles. Yes. I mean, yeah. Yes. I will say... My memory of the Secret Diaries one mm-hmm. was that it was, like, really deliciously angsty. Oh my gosh, yes. I think yes. this points to the books that I like best by Julia Quinn mm-hmm. are the deliciously angsty ones and not the, um... Fluff. The fluff as much. Yeah. That's, but that's what people like about her, and we'll, we'll talk about that. Anyway, so I've read all the books. My favorite of the books is number five, I believe. Which one's that one? Or six. Um, whichever one is When He Was Wicked. That's oh, my okay. favorite. Yeah. The Viscount Who Loved Me is my second favorite. Mm-hmm. I do really like The Viscount Who Loved Me. So I have read six of the eight. So I haven't read Hyacinth or Gregory's. She's like, oh, screw those kids. I was, I was just like, I don't know. They're small children. They were like, in my head, they were still small children. And I just like couldn't yeah, yeah get really invested in their like, adult love stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It just, just it was weird. So I, yeah, I stopped before then. But Molly has told me that Gregory's was quite fun. Yeah, Gregory's does a lot of parallels to Antony's book, which is The Viscount Who Loved Me. So yeah. that's kind of fun. Becky, do you want to tell us what your experience with the Bridgerton? Uh, yeah, Becky has no experience with the Bridgertons <laughs> until the show, um, in which case then she asked Molly lots of questions. Oh, am I talking in third person? <laughs> I, asked, I asked Molly a lot of questions then because, um, especially in the first season, and then moving into the second one, I was fascinated to hear about what was changing because it seemed like the first season was like relatively faithful to the storyline and the second one went completely off. Way off. Yeah. And then we had some real discussions about like some of the the character choices that didn't seem to make sense because of the directions that Mm -hmm. they took. So yeah, I mainly just like heard about the books from from Molly. Yeah. And I think something we can do in a future episode is like drill down more deeply into 
the specific seasons yes. and that sort of thing. I mean, inevitably, we'll be talking about some of those things. So I guess I'm just going to say blanket warning for spoilers, spoilers for the show, for the first two seasons of the show. And I'll give a warning if I'm giving a spoiler for the books, which may or may not be a spoiler for the show. The show. But it's like <laughs> genuinely huge question mark of whether that's the case. Um, yeah, especially because some of the changes may impact, some mm-hmm. of the changes that have been made to the first two books slash seasons may then impact future seasons. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, and we're already seeing uh, a huge change happening with season three in that if we were following the pattern established so far, the third season would be book three, Mm -hmm. um, an offer from a gentleman, which is Benedict's book. But in fact, we know now season three is going to be about Colin and Penelope, and that is book four in the series. (laughs) And I I don't know to what extent that will follow the plot of that book. I know. I really do wonder if part of the reason that they did that, I mean, obviously they started building up Penelope and Colin's kind of fraught relationship in the second season, which, you know, is a little earlier than, as Molly said, it would have happened otherwise. But I also, my hope is that they're just trying to, like, build themselves up to finally just letting Benedict be queer. (laughs) (laughs) Because, yeah, yeah, his, like, weird straight storylines have not been good in my opinion, so far. They've just been, like, very underwhelming and strange. So yes. Maybe they just don't know what they want to do with him yet. Yeah. yeah. And I what do, it feels do. like, <laughs> yes. And I feel like they really hit, like, fast forward and, like, up the stakes on the Miss Whistle something with Lady, Penelope. The Lady, Lady yeah, down, yeah. With Penelope, so it almost feels like they rush, now they have to address some of that stuff. Yes. Because a, a crucial part of the books is that you don't know who Lady mm-hmm. Whistledown is until book four and it's like part way through book four mm-hmm. you find out that it is Penelope and it's a huge twist whereas they set it up I mean as a twist in the first season but then you know and it, it, the, the payoff is very different. I will say like I do like that they made Nicola Coughlin is that the actress's name? I probably mm, mispronouncing that's her name, it. But I don't know if that's um, how you pronounce it. But I really like that they gave her kind of a larger role more on the front end because she's such a good actor. Yeah. <laughs> and she's like so wonderful at like comedy, but also in the series, they're mostly using her for like drama and she just has such great range. I love her. And I'm really excited to see, you know, how they show her story. Yeah. But yeah, that's, um, there, anyway, a lot of changes. That's some of what we're going to be talking about, yes. is what these changes kind of look like, what they do. So we're gonna take a break? Yeah. Already? Yes. Sure. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk about the, the way that these books were adapted, and some of the decisions made in terms of adaptation. And then maybe talk a little bit about, like, why did that make this show so appealing to so many people? Like, why did it mm-hmm. become a phenomenon? Yeah. So why don't we give a quick preview of some of the changes that we're going to kind of highlight? One yeah. of them, the big one, being uh, race and race. casting. Yes, <laughs> race and casting. And I think that's been the big talking point about Bridgerton, um, both in, in praise of it and in critiques of it. Yes. And also the subject of so many of Molly and my text conversations, (laughs) just like really, uh, 
excited slash annoyed DMs. Yeah. <laughs> well, they just feel like, well, we'll get into this, but I feel like the decision to have a cast full of people of color has made Bridgerton much more susceptible to critique by, like, self-important academics in ways mm. that annoy me. The other big changes, there, there's been a genre shift. It's gone from a sort of rom com Regency romance to, like, a real soap operatic Shonda you know, yeah. Shondaland production. You know, just general issues of faithness and fidelity, additions to the plot. Um, so those are some of the things we'll be we'll be talking about. When we return. Dun dun dun. <laughs> Very soap operatic, Becky. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back. Again, we are true is universally acknowledged, and we're talking about Bridgerton and adaptation. So, yeah, let's, should we just jump in? Just dive right into the deep end here okay. and talk about, like, the most obvious and probably also most, con- well, one of the most controversial, certainly, aspects of the adaptation, which is race and their weird, like, not exactly colorblind casting. Becky, I know we've had you on before to talk about this in the past, but do you yeah. want to kind of explain, like, what Bridgerton's version of casting um, Yeah, is? Well, it's also really tricky. I was talking to Molly about this earlier, is it really feels like there's a, a difference between the first and second season as well, where the first season, and I maybe I also have Molly mention the the thing that Lady Danbury talks about, right? When they, like, one of the moments when they actually bring it to the fore, but then it doesn't seem to actually affect the storyline in a way that I would say happens when it's, like, color-conscious casting. Mm -hmm. There's a scene where Lady Danbury, who in the show has been cast as a black woman, is talking to Simon, who in the show has been cast as a black man, and is talking about love, and talks about the queen, who is a black woman, marrying the king, who is white, and how that this interracial love basically opened opportunities that wouldn't have been thought possible before. But until that moment, they really had not addressed yeah. race. It's like, and it's after like that moment, they never really... Utopian yeah. post-race, like, there's just... They don't see it. Like, it's not seen. And so in the second season, when you have specifically the differences between the two sisters, there's this element of colorism in that the younger sister, who is the lighter sister, who is not, quote-unquote, full... Indian in the way that her older sister, her stepsister is, that feels like it becomes a preference and a a sense of belonging, like who gets to be a part of this community, or at least that's how the in-laws kind of come into it in that same capacity. And she, Kate has kind of accepted that she will not belong in that space because Mm -hmm. of, of her background. And so I think that that, but then again, like that is, it's still, it's never explicitly, it's just much more a part of the narrative. Well, Mm -hmm. and it's, I think it's like as much class Mm. or it's like as in terms of how explicitly it's described Mm -hmm. it's as much class as it is not right because the other thing is it's not just that kate's father was indian Mm -hmm. but that he was not a noble right Mm -hmm. he was was a clerk yes so i I think it's one of those examples where like sometimes when when race is used and this actually still sometimes is classified as colorblind when like race is used to emphasize a different aspect Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so in that case class yeah yeah well so what's interesting i think about how bridgerton does kind of have these weird little nods towards race is that it's not even in the first season it's not even that it isn't ever acknowledged after that or that they're like in this post 
utopian post-race society because as Lady Danbury says, like, you still have this fear that it will be taken from you mm-hmm. at any moment because of race, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea that, like, even though in the kind of weird day-to-day goings-on of the ton that people don't seem to acknowledge race, that there is still this kind of fear in the back of your head and this idea that, like, it only happened very recently that the ton became that way. The thing that I think is interesting that happens both in the first and the second season of Bridgerton is that there's no acknowledgement of a world outside of, or of how race functions in a world outside of the British Isles. Mm -hmm. And like, so there's... I mean, outside the aristocracy, pretty much. Yes, (laughs) I know. There's even, I mean, even though Kate and her family, the Sharmas, in the show at least, yes come from India, there's not an acknowledgement of the, like, there's, there's maybe, like, a little kind of vague hint in the form of tea and Kate's disdain for tea (laughs) to the fact that Britain has colonized Mm -hmm. India, but there's not any real mention of the United States and the situation with slavery there or the fact that until 1813 slavery was still legal or really the slave trade was still legal in Britain uh slavery itself did not end in greater like the greater British Empire so slavery was illegal in the archipelago but did not end elsewhere in the colonies until the 1830s mm-hmm. <laughs> and so there's no acknowledgement of that well there's the question also of like is that the world we're supposed to assume they're inhabiting at this point mm-hmm. if they had this interesting interracial marriage that apparently brought what is it you said she said brought us yeah i think she said something you know like gave us yeah unforeseen and like the us i think in that moment is implicitly people of color or maybe black people. Yeah, Um, black Britons. But then there's also the question of, like, okay, well, what is blackness? Because at that time, blackness Mm -hmm. also included, like, people from China and people from India. And basically, like, there's this whole category of black Britishness that even through, like, the 20th century until, like, really the 70s or 80s was still considered blackness which was not, it was like a form of coalition building in Britain that came out of, you know, colonial history and then Windrush Mm -hmm. and like all of Britain's like very weird and confused (laughs) um, relationships to race. And so, yeah, it's like, who is us in this Mm -hmm. situation, right? Yes. And I think there's a lot that's left unclear about, okay, if, as is implied in the show, Simon's father was sort of mm-hmm. one of these black men who were, was, like, Newly, somehow elevated yeah. into mm-hmm. the aristocracy. Where did he come from? Like, what is, yeah. what, you know, where were they elevated from? Were they, like, again, these are just questions mm-hmm. that are... They're invited, but also, like, not invited. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, and the, the interesting thing, and I think that, like, we're, that talking about, like, how does a black man in 18th century... Britain kind of rise into the position of an aristocrat is interesting and kind of brings up these other things that like other conversations that happened around race when the first season of Bridgerton came out, which one of them was just a bunch of people saying like, you know, they shouldn't have cast 
people of color in these roles because there weren't very many people of color in yeah. Britain, which is actually just so false. Yeah. Yes. Um, and saying like, oh, well, like, especially the idea of there not being black aristocrats, there were mm-hmm. actually not very many by the 18th century and 19th century, but before then, right? I'm kind of nodding to Becky here because she's her specialty is earlier than mine. Mm-hmm. But for example, like a lot of Equiano made so much money off of publishing his narrative that he actually ended up, I mean, he married a woman who in who he then inherited like her land and passed it on to their children who were biracial and he was a gentleman basically Mm -hmm. um by the time he died so it it was not impossible Mm -hmm. (laughs) for people to like rise through class ranks Mm -hmm. and i think also really kind of in some ways through racial ranks though i think we i think it's fair to say it would it would have been rare like i think it's fair to look at bridgerton and say this is not what the regency aristocracy looked like like. that doesn't mean you can't have it in a show Mm -hmm. i think that the critique that comes up right then is i think there are various layers right one layer is well if we're telling these stories you know these like regency romances which for various reasons we've talked about are super popular Mm -hmm. if we're trying to adhere to quote-unquote historical accuracy there will be very few people of color in them. Mm -hmm. So point two, let's cast people of color in them and just Mm -hmm. say, fuck it. Like, does it really matter? Okay. Then point three is, well, by casting people of color in it, you are in a way sanitizing history Mm -hmm. because the way that this aristocratic class made itself was through the subjugation of people of color. So by having a black man play a duke in something like Bridgerton, we're sort of ignoring the way that, like, the English aristocracy was able to have dukes because they colonized the world. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. And then, so then I think there's the point of, I think that the sort of, like, enlightened point that people want you to come to is we should just stop telling stories about the Regency and aristocrats Mm -hmm. and, like, fancy rich people, but, like... No. (laughs) That's so silly. I kind of am like, no. Like, I'm sorry. If rich people are good for anything, it needs to be entertaining me. Yeah, (laughs) right? Exactly. And, well, it's also just, like, the thing, the point that I come to then is also, like, this idea that people of color can't have joy, right? Like, this idea that we don't, that because historically people of color have been, you know, subjected to violence and to just all manner of horrible things. And when I say violence, it's like a very wide category Mm -hmm. of different kinds of violence, but that therefore we just associate anyone who is not white with pain. And that is also just unfair because people need to be able to see themselves in stories, in the stories that they want to read. And in some ways, that's telling people of color, like, okay, well, these stories don't belong to you. They are not for you, right? Mm -hmm. And that itself also is a huge problem. So I think, I don't know, I think the, the thing where I come down with this sort of casting is that either you just don't acknowledge like you don't try to um make some weird like alternate reality world where there are inevitably going to be gaps 
especially if you're, you do it, like, with Bridgerton, where it's this, like, very shoddily constructed <laughs> one, yeah. um, and you just don't acknowledge that, and you do, like, true colorblind casting, and you just say, like, anyone can play this role, mm-hmm. and in some ways it can be kind of subversive to have, you know, a, a black man playing a duke, because you're saying, you know, even though historically it would have been denied to him, he gets to have this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or you actually do the careful work (laughs) of when you cast people of color in these roles, you make sure that they are full human beings (laughs) and that they are, like, that their race and their identity and the various ways, and I think this, like, especially comes in for me in the second season of Bridgerton with the question of India. Mm Mm-hmm that instead of just having these weird, like, little nods of, like, oh, look, we have, like, various parts of Desi culture, you know? Yeah, right. like and It was yeah. a very, like, pan-Indian, yes, non-specific, yeah. like, mm-hmm. you know, that was a big critique I saw. Yeah. It was, like, there seemed to be no specific cultural mm-hmm. touchstone. Mm-hmm. It was just, like, India! Yeah, which <laughs> India is a humongous <laughs> subcontinent. So you have to, like, actually do your due diligence. That's mm-hmm. the other the other side of it. You can't kind of half-ass it. And it's going to be interesting in the next season because this is our first intra-racial, like, just two white people. Yeah. Um, and, like, with the previous seasons, there was something happening with the interracial relationships, even if they weren't always playing into it in the ways that I expected. Mm-hmm. And so, like, where's race going to go now? <laughs> <laughs> we'll yeah. I um I did want to go back to a point you were making, Emma, not because I think you don't know this, but just because I want to, mm-hmm. like, make it clear for listeners, yeah. which is that I do think that people who are advocating for, like, giving up the aristocratic storylines mm-hmm. are not advocating for giving up, like, stories of joy for people of color, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, romance novelists, I always turn to romance novelists because their whole thing is, like, we want to write happy, <laughs> like, yeah. Some, Stories Mm -hmm. where people experience joy. So, like, romance novelists like Beverly Jenkins or Piper Hewley, Mm -hmm. um, who are both African-American romance novelists who write historical, like, they are still writing happy endings. They are still writing people of color experiencing joy. They're just doing it within a context that is also historically situated in where, like, black Americans would have been in the 19th century. Or, like... Courtney Milan has kind of done both, right? She's mm-hmm. she's written The Duke Who Didn't, where she has a Chinese-British duke mm-hmm. who's being a duke is never really explained. I mean, it's just, <laughs> we just take, we're like, okay, he, he is a, mm-hmm. a Chinese-British duke who visits this, like, village that is, like, primarily Chinese-British inhabitants, mm-hmm. and, like, there's a whole culture and society there, and, like, it's colorblind in as much as, I mean, it's not colorblind because it's very specific to culture, but it's colorblind in its, like, larger historical, like, is this historically accurate Mm, thing. mm -hmm. But then she also has, like, moved away from doing a lot of representing the aristocracy. I really struggle with that. The aristocracy. And has done more and more books about working class people. And people who are not British. Mm -hmm. And, like, people outside of that particular sphere. But still, again, like, finding joy. And again, Mm -hmm. I just say that to be clear that mm-hmm. I don't think the even though I am personally in favor of continuing to represent the aristocracy because mm-hmm. again rich people are my entertainment mm-hmm. uh, the people who advocate doing away with it I think still see joy to be found in yes. these other kinds of stories but I think you mm-hmm. still see problems pop up because part of the appeal of the aristocracy right or of these things is like 
there's a security, there's a financial mm-hmm. security, there's like a yeah. social security. And so then you start seeing things like, okay, he's not a aristocrat, but he's a billionaire. And I'm like, mm-hmm. is that better? Right. <laughs> um, and again, like, that's not, I wouldn't say Beverly Jenkins would never do that, but mm-hmm. like, there are authors who do that. Or like, mm-hmm. he's not, he's not an aristocrat, he's not a duke, but he's a railroad entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, that's questionable too. Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, there is... There is no way to accrue a massive amount of wealth without exploiting people along the way. Mm -hmm. Um, But, (laughs) sorry, but I should have been more kind of um, specific when I spoke that, like, that particular form of joy, basically it's an idea that, like, certain forms of joy belong to certain people, Mm -hmm. right? And that I, as, like, a biracial Latina woman, cannot, like, because I wouldn't see myself in the kind of, Arist, uh, Arist, oh, oh my god, now <laughs> you, it's contagious <laughs> um, in the aristocracy at that period. That because I wouldn't be able to see myself within that, that those stories are mm-hmm. not ones that like I can want and enjoy, mm-hmm. right? Or that I cannot kind of imagine myself within that and within those characters, even though technically, like, that would not have been accurate, right? Mm -hmm. It's this idea of kind of, like, pick your poison in terms of subversion, right? Like, there are different ways to subvert a genre, and as Molly said, whichever one you pick is going to come with problems, Um, just because if you're working within a historical period, Uh you're going to, and I mean, also, you know, modern day, Mm -hmm. you're going to come with those problems. And so it's just a responsibility of, like, how do you want to actually address them? I don't think that that means that we should not, that we should just completely give up working within Mm -hmm. those genres, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, and when it comes to romance, you'll get people arguing that the happy ending is in in and of itself a problem, right? Like, the idea that, like, a happy ending or happily ever after means, like, romantic love is, like inherently conservative like that is an argument people make so i guess what i'm saying is like yeah every genre is going to have its critics yeah and it's like every decision you make is going to have its critics and it's Um, like well then again like there are people who are working with non-traditional forms of like not necessarily like romantic love in that way or like non-monogamy and different forms of like subverting mm-hmm. that idea of the happy ending as you know like a cis hetero couple right <laughs> um so yeah it's it's just how you decide to approach it but i think that you actually really do have have a responsibility like not just us as readers, but, like, any time that someone's going to be working within a genre, they have the responsibility to think about the implications of that genre, um, rather than just kind of, like, throwing up your hands and saying, like, nope, it's too hard, <laughs> um, because that's sad. I don't want to give up on the, the joy of, like, all these poofy skirts and, uh, and like, absolutely bonkers marriages of convenience and you know all sorts of silly things that you get in historical (laughs) right like all the ridiculous rules of society and everything exactly yeah yeah so Uh, that's what that's what i was trying to say with that one i mean we've we've talked about race not that we are ever done talking about race to be honest but let's talk about molly you had said something about we are already kind of talking about genre yeah so like let's talk about what changed in terms of the genre from the Bridgerton books to the show and like 
Becky, I would love to hear your thoughts on, like, I didn't read the how... Books. Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, like, I would love to hear your thoughts on just, like, genre shifts yeah. in adaptation in general. Going back to, I think, about what you were just talking about with genre and, like, intention and responsibility and, like, what actually comes out of <laughs> different choices, right? Every choice can make a big difference. But, I mean, and and this is actually stuff I, I feel like I learned from Molly when you were doing your chapter on, on genre or even in your, your prelims on genre, mm-hmm. the idea that genre kind of sets audience expectations, that mm-hmm. like creates a horizon of expectations from audiences. And so, you know, working with Shakespeare's plays, recognizing that, like, his plays are often sectioned off into different genres with only mm-hmm. a few plays considered to be messing with those boundaries. Mm-hmm. But in fact, like, many of his plays pose problems to, for instance, what we consider to be a comedy at mm-hmm. this point in time because... They're racist and they're sexist and mm-hmm. they're anti-Semitic and they're ableist, et cetera, et cetera, right? A lot of the comedy comes from beating servants. Ooh, how fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I won't lie. I laughed at comedy of errors. Some of it, <laughs> you know, and that was full of servant beating. And I was like, why am I laughing at this? But there's certain comedies that I just like, I no matter what, I do not find it funny. I don't find it yeah. works. And same with some of these, because marriage comedies have been read now as as a basis for romantic comedies, and so that's how we interpret them. And I, I always go back to Shakespeare, sorry. But um, I do think that genre and then the choice to shift genre is um, actually, I think, a, a very interesting choice. Because for me, right, when I'm looking at something like Taming of the Shrew, it is a, it's a farce in early mm-hmm. modern comedy. And so to try to make it a rom-com is actually a shift in genre. But mm. many people would not see it that way. Yeah. They would see the original as a romantic comedy. I don't know how. I I have no way, I'm like, there's no way that this is romance, but that is often how it's played to somehow great success. Not to pretend like I understand. So I think the idea of shifting from a rom-com to a drama, to me, makes a lot of sense for Netflix. Um, You know, so, and and I think you'll say more about, like, director and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Like, you already said, it's moving in in a very specific direction because of the vision Mm -hmm. that was going into it. But, you know, I, I think that we are drawn to... On, and when it comes to a long form, like if we're going to watch an entire season of something, drama seems able to last in a way that like sometimes like I I would watch an entire season of a rom-com, but I don't know if people like to get the wide audience that I think Bridgerton wanted to get, they made that shift. But that shift also then required specific shifts in the character and the narratives that had really big effects yes, on, as Emma yeah. said, even following seasons. Mm-hmm, yes. They really had to add in cliffhangers and oh betrayals and babies. <laughs> <laughs> I like how babies was the most... Babies, no! <laughs> I also just want to say, like, what you said about, like, the shift that Taming of the Shrew mm-hmm. takes, for instance, into, like, 10 Things I Hate About yeah. You, is so interesting and, like, it makes total sense the way you're explaining it, but I wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I do think, though, that, like, this genre shift in Bridgerton is a really big one. Mm-hmm. It, I think so. So the books, like I said, are sort of, um, they're, they're in the tradition of the Regency romance that was sort of set up. I mean, I'm simplifying it, but, like, through the Austin to Georgia hair sort of pipeline. <laughs> um <laughs> Where you get these very sort of light uh, marriage comedies or mm-hmm. comedies of manners or however yeah. you want to think about it set in the Regency that often have to do with the aristocracy encountering these like difficult social 
situations and like an interesting move from Austin to Hare to what we read now is like mm-hmm. people get increasingly uh higher class higher class <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, like Mr. Darcy was not a duke but he did have a lot of money. Somebody was writing write, yeah, Pride and Prejudice today. Duke Darcy. He would oh be the yeah. Duke. And each book has a slightly different tone, I will say. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, Eloise's book is kind of playing with the genre of the gothic. Yeah. Not super successfully, in my opinion. <laughs> um, yeah, not but one it, of my favorites. It, it is playing with that. My favorite of the books, When He Was Wicked, is like not especially funny or light it's like the that's francesca's book and it is the darkest of the books there's a lot of angst and that's why why i like it um (laughs) whereas like i really like i like the comedy of the viscount yeah which i i think that one the reason i like it is because to me that nails it it nails antony's i keep asking i don't know which one's so rich okay yeah so that's the one i mean it's like enemies to lovers kind of which is the so it maintained the trope of that the second season like the second season maintained the trope of the book Mm -hmm. but still had that kind of genre shift yes and I think especially the first season the genre shift was like quite stark because I know I had mentioned like the absolute ridiculousness that goes along with some of the historical kind of Mm rom-coms especially and oh my goodness the scene in the garden where and I mean we also get this in the second book like there are two scenes in gardens (laughs) bad things happen in gardens but like the one with Daphne where like she falls into a bush and instantly her dress is shredded and like wow what a bush oh my god it was just I was just like this is insane what (laughs) and And the bee scene I'm sorry the bee scene very big shift also very big noticeable shift right because you said that it would have followed maybe too closely the plot line of yes. the first one if they'd mm-hmm. gone with the plot line of the yes, second one. Yes, that's yeah. very true. Yeah. But so, I wish they had kept the B scene. It would have been yeah. so good. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about the B scene. <laughs> <laughs> maybe next episode. But More to come. The thing I wanted to say was, what was the thing? Oh, but I think what's interesting is though, even though these books are generally like lighter and less melodramatic than the... Mm-hmm show or like when there is melodrama it's sort of like played off lightly like it's not really meant to be like all that deep the the show in some ways like made some things lighter or like less disturbing than they were in oh, the books. oh my gosh so the yeah. big thing is in season one mm-hmm. slash book one the scene where and i'm just going to describe it like in terms of the thing that like what happens uh sans value judgment um which is where Daphne and Simon are having sex, and then uh, he starts coming, and she's on top, and she doesn't. She let doesn't him let out. him pull out. Um, that happens in the book, and it is about ten thousand times more disturbing. I think there yeah. are disturbing optics in the show because she is white and he is black, mm-hmm. but the actual like event in the book is. I mean, basically, like, what Daphne does is, like, very clearly Mm pre-planned. She gets him drunk. It is very disturbing to read. And I don't think that Julia Quinn writing it was, like, this is hilarious. Mm -hmm. I don't know that she was, like, this is rape. (laughs) I don't know what she thought exactly. And so, to me, the show actually improved that scene. But... I think it's interesting because I was like, why did they feel the need to keep that scene when they were yeah. so willing to change so much in the second right. season? So there, there's a lot of and questions. Especially, I mean, 
Molly, you hinted at this just a second ago with the, the optics of race here, but just to be clear, like, black men have been forced to be basically, like, reduced to their reproductive capacity. Mm -hmm. Historically, I mean, in terms of slavery, there was the forced reproduction, so rape, of black men and women, mm -hmm. basically so that slavery could continue in the U.S. and in other places. But then there's also the legacy of that, which mm -hmm. is this historical just legacy of violence against black men in the ideas of like the the overly sexual like black predatorial man the idea especially that black men are attempting to like seduce and rape white women and so the optics like those are the optics just yes. to be extremely yes. explicit <laughs> about of, yes those are the problematic um, optics of race in that scene. And, and like, I have a lot of thoughts about that scene as somebody who literally studies rape and romance. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not all exactly what you might think. I think it's, a, it's a, a complicated scene for what I think it's trying to do and what it actually does. But either way, it is an improvement on the book. I will give it that. I really do believe that. Um, <laughs> Which is, like, a weird thing to say, right? Like, yeah. just to think about, like, yeah, in both cases, it is not good. But in the book, it's, like... Yeah, I mean, my feelings, just the short version, is that although I think it still is bad in the show, I think it's more coherently part of a broader mm. narrative of the season mm. about the withholding of information from women about sex mm -hmm. and the way that that lack of knowledge plays into questions about their ability to consent that yes. I think then becomes replicated in her relationship with Simon. Mm -hmm. um, and See again, Molly's great blog post. Yeah, so uh, Molly. I have not actually written a whole blog post. I have like one on a line. Oh, dang. Oh, blog post. Okay. So never mind. See Molly's future blog post. Yeah. No, you have to write it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> but anyway, but like I think they were like I don't know how intentionally, but like it feels like they were trying to do something and it didn't quite work, and then it also just yeah. Mm. But, but but I do think like yeah, what you're saying is like and. I think it's interesting to think about it in that way. Like, it adds a degree of nuance that is, like, the <laughs> that is yeah. very different in the book. Yes. Um, um, I think, like, in the book, it's just like, wow, like, what Simon's doing sucks, but Daphne, what you just did is, like, in no way even remotely, like... Comprehensible. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, in the show, well, in the show, it's playing on her ignorance, and as you said, that, like, gets shown not just in Daphne's storyline, but, like, with Eloise and Penelope talking about mm -hmm. pregnancy. Mm -hmm. so, I mean, with Marina, like, there, yeah. there's a lot happening in the show that has to do with, like, women not knowing what, knowing how their bodies work, yeah. how pregnancy work, how ending a pregnancy works, and so, like, power with, comes into that. Yeah. yeah, and I think also probably, like, not knowing or, like, not really understanding because they're new to it like how power works in those situations yeah. as well so while it's you know she does something that is bad yeah I mean, and reprehensible it's reprehensible at, at the same time you can like you can hold the nuance of saying like okay i understand how this happened and like still kind of be like you know obviously mm -hmm. she did something wrong but like it makes sense with her character and the her character's yeah. information in and, a way that it just does not and i think books. that's one of the moments right where the the quote-unquote colorblind casting 
becomes problematic because mm-hmm. if you are colorblind to something, then you cannot see can sort of the yeah you like effect. reproduce these like yeah. harmful dynamics mm-hmm. that you know maybe wouldn't have felt the exact same way. So, which okay, this is kind of getting us into our other. Yeah, category, I know. which I had to do with like faithfulness and fidelity, yeah. and then also, which we can talk about still, and also the addition of new characters. Yeah, so, well, we were just mentioning Marina. Yes. And so, um, Marina is another character who, and as we were talking before we started recording, like, she may be a new character, she may not be a new character yeah, exactly. We, we, won't we don't give it know. away exactly, but there's a chance she's a character from the books, but. It's unclear. And we really hope that she's not. Um, <laughs> we'll just say that much. We yeah. hope she's not the character yeah. from the books. And so is she, obviously, we have her as another character who doesn't, has was not educated on how pregnancy functioned. Or at least she seems to have more information than some of the other characters do, but she's still, you know. I mean, she's still wound up pregnant. Wound up pregnant, mm-hmm. exactly. And then when she tries to end her pregnancy, she also doesn't do that properly, right? And mm-hmm. has a doctor sort of come and say, like, that's not how that works. Yeah. And when her, and her, uh, well, again, addition, I mean, either way, her storyline is, is an addition. Right? Yes. In this, mm-hmm. and, yes. and it's very dramatic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tie it back to genre. Like, it adds a lot of um, elements to multiple characters' lives, so it really complicates in a way that we'll see what happens, you know, Colin Penelope's future romance, mm-hmm. because he's now pining after this woman that she was kind of friends with, and then... Kind super badly exposed in a way that you said that Lady Whistledown doesn't doesn't do that. Yeah, <laughs> sort of. The, the tone of Lady Whistledown in the books versus in the show is also very and that different. Might be an element mm-hmm. of genre, yes, which I think is an element of, yeah, of genre. Yeah, I know, and that's something that like I know I had just talked about like how much I I really like uh, Nicola Coughlin and the way that her character has kind of become more of a presence. But that that reveal with like her betraying Marina. Uh, Marina was just something that like Penelope would never have done. No. <laughs> Penelope would never. Yeah, so if you want, if you do want to see my blog post, it's at thesinisterspinster.com, and the post is titled "Penelope Would Never." Yeah. <laughs> and I do a review of season one of Bridgerton. It's very I, good. I realized as soon as I said that that I was echoing <laughs> you, but yes. Yeah, so Marina's a, a notable addition, but I think the most notable addition to me is yeah. the queen. Mm-hmm. Um, Which also goes back to the question of, like, race and the aristocracy, because mm-hmm. there's that idea of, like, this being the foundational marriage between her and the king mm-hmm. that somehow allowed for this bizarre whatever the heck's going on with race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I mean, I... I don't know. Like, I genuinely do not know how I feel about the queen being in the show. I think she Mm -hmm. adds something sometimes. She adds elements of comedy sometimes. She adds stakes, right? The fact that the aristocracy are constantly faced with someone who could ruin them. Mm -hmm. Though Lady Whistledown is given that same amount of power. Like, that's what's interesting to me is this weird kind of head-to-head battle between the queen and Lady Whistledown that Mm -hmm. really we get in season two. Um, and then Eloise gets swept up in that, and that's what leads to the huge breakdown between their friendship, which I'm like, oh, okay. So many things happening. But yeah, the queen, I don't, I find her really fun, especially when she and Lady Danbury are, like, hanging out mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Um, her wigs are insane. Yeah. So maybe it's just also a chance to do some great costuming. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I think at times, I, I do find myself perplexed yeah. by, by her, her presence, because... 
I guess I think I think we were saying about stakes, and I think about the scope of the show. It like mm-hmm. shows how the scope of the show expands to the point that it's not really about the Bridgertons anymore, right? Mm-hmm. It's not really about like the question of like family and marriage and stuff, but really I think is trying to be a a commentary on this society at large. But what is in, it trying to say? That's is the question. The thing. <laughs> yeah, um, that's the because big question. I mean, that's and I think that that also goes to the question of adaptation and like genre shift. Is that like the books were very much about the family, right? Mm-hmm. And if it's expanding beyond that into a social commentary, it, like, really has not, I mean, I, they have not really done the work of figuring out the universe that they exist in. They have mm-hmm. not done the work of figuring out, like, how different characters and, like, political things like race and mm-hmm. relationships between countries, which were extremely important. Mm-hmm at the turn of the 18th to the 19th century. Like, France is right across the (laughs) channel. We just had the revolution. And obviously, there was also just the revolution in the the U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And the form, like, you know, we're recording this on July 5th. So, like, you know, (laughs) Merca. But, yeah, so, like, they haven't done Mm -hmm. all of that work. Yeah, what are they And there's a lot of filling in... I'm thinking about some of the other characters that are, that are added, and I think there's a lot of sort of filling in the spaces of this society. So I'm thinking about the dressmaker, mm-hmm. and in season two we get the, like, newspaper printer. Yeah. And trying to kind of, like, oh, put, and the, put the, the boxer. boxer. The yeah. boxer, yeah. yes. That's a great, yeah, who, again, also an addition. And mm-hmm. he becomes a gentleman's, like, club owner. It's clearly trying to, like, fill in some of the gaps of, like, a pure aristocratic focus. It I mean, even Marina, do. right? She's sort of like a country gentleman's daughter. Mm-hmm. Like she, mm-hmm. she's not really like a lady of the aristocracy. Yeah. But again, it doesn't seem to be to any purpose or to like mm-hmm. give us anything beyond just kind of I don't know more things for to for, for drama to happen. Yeah, like, I know. I, mean, I, feel like that. I think part of it has to do with like the show structure. Like a lot of the time social and political commentary does rely on structure to a point. Like mm-hmm. if you're thinking about, for example, like Downton Abbey, you have like the comparison. Yeah. Um, as well as the area of overlap, right? So you have this like very structured universe of the house and like the manor, mm-hmm. right? Where you have and I mean, I'm going to reference another uh, show in saying this, the, like, upstairs, downstairs, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and here we don't really have that. We have, like, these kind of incidental characters who mm-hmm. just happen to be within the lives of the other characters, and some of them are really interesting, right? But it doesn't feel... It feels like they added them on to just flesh out the world and to have more interest rather than yeah. to actually say something about, like, kind of our main characters, for instance, right? Well, and I think this also actually is pointing to another issue in terms of genre and adaptation, which is this is an adaptation of a romance novel series. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, the way romance novel series work, and we are seeing this in the show to a degree, is that each book in the series has a different main character, or different main characters, right? Mm-hmm. Each book in the series focuses on a different relationship. And maybe some of the other characters span the other books. You know, you get introduced to certain characters earlier, and then you don't get their book till later. And the show is replicating that to a degree, but 
it is still trying to be primarily an ensemble, or at least still mm. significantly an ensemble, which means they have to invent things <laughs> for all these other people to be doing in the background. Whereas in the book, like, you know, maybe Colin's doing something while Benedict is, like, having his adventures and falling in love, but, like, it's, like, one scene of Colin doing something. Mm-hmm. As opposed to, we need Colin in every episode to keep reminding you that he exists. Or, mm. you know, and they were kind of able to get away with it in season two because they only brought Daphne in a little bit. Like, they could sort of have, like, oh, Daphne and Simon went off to his, like, ducal estate. Mm-hmm. Is that the word? Ducal? That sounds so weird. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah, uh, that sounds super weird. Sorry. Uh, yes. And, but it was still kind of noticeable, the fact that Simon, because the actor left the show yeah. to go on Did, and do other things. Wasn't ever there. Wasn't ever around. Mm-hmm. Um, like, at a certain point, if they want to continue having this sort of Bridgerton family thing, they probably need to recast him, which obviously tragic, because he's extremely handsome. He's so hot. But oh, yeah. also, again, to talk about, like, just being somewhat conscious of race, looks bad for him to be a, like absent father all the time (laughs) yeah well and then there's also the question of like if you recast him like like if they don't do a good job of casting someone who looks enough like him they're going to they're inevitably going to be like comments of like okay well not all black Black men look the same (laughs) yeah especially because like Richard Jean Page is just beautiful like Like, thinking about additions like it I I know part of it is just like it's a Netflix show Mm -hmm. it's by someone who I think usually does ensemble. Right, we haven't really yeah. talked about the Shonda Rhimes of it all. But like, and also like, point. just to fill up with an hour in a huge season, like yeah, I just like feel 10 like, episodes, an hour I don't know each. if they would have, it would have been a lot shorter. And yes. I think they were like, no, yeah. no, no, we want to make it long. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, we can talk about the Shonda Rhimes of it all, but I also kind of, like, I think that that maybe makes more sense to talk about when we talk about the actual series yeah. itself and like the next two episodes so that might be something that we kind of bookend until next week or not next week next time yes um but i know this sounds i feel like it sounds like we we're just absolutely shitting on bridgerton right now but i really liked it like i enjoyed watching it yes even though there are definitely things that i obviously <laughs> can critique about it right Well, I think this is what I was getting at when I sort of said, like, I feel like people feel like they can really come at it for all of its mistakes Mm -hmm. in a way because it feels like it's, I think we want to read it as doing something more ambitious or progressive than it is. Yeah. And it's not doing those things. Well, and I think that's part part of the reason is because it's based in this series of books that yeah. we're not doing yeah. this. Um, and so I think there's like this desire to, to like debunk it, right? Mm-hmm. To be like, you think that it's like so progressive because there are black people, but <laughs> oh actually <my> and I'm like, <laughs> I don't think that like yeah, I mean well, I'm sure there are viewers who maybe think that, but I, I I like to give people some credit for understanding they're watching popcorn entertainment. Mm-hmm. They're watching I don't think people watching Scandal felt like they were watching like the most progressive thing of all mm-hmm. time because Carrie Washington was in it. The thing is that I do think that you're right about, like, some academics, like, certainly seemed or acted as though they were expecting it to be much more progressive than it actually is. Mm -hmm. And that's really bizarre to me because we're supposed to be able to take these genre things into consideration and, like, be able to, like, analyze what a a piece of work is attempting to do, right? But... Instead, it's this idea that, like, yeah, because there are people of color in it, it is going to inherently be progressive somehow. Yeah, it's like when, being held to this mm-hmm. standard that I just like. 
are you holding, like, other soap operas to this season? <laughs> well, and it's also just this idea that, like, it, it's a flattening idea of what having people of color mm. within mm-hmm. a television show or within any piece of media means, mm-hmm. which ignores not only the fact that, like, these people of color who are cast within the show probably don't have much of a say in the show itself. Also, that there is a huge range of experiences, and a lot of, I mean, like, there are a bunch of Latinos in, like, ICE and Border Patrol. Like, there are a bunch of really conservative people of color. And third, it's this idea that, like, that it has to do that work. Mm-hmm. When sometimes you just want something that, like, is fluffy candy and you can acknowledge that there are problems with it, like the fact that maybe I'm gonna get a cavity from eating all of this cotton candy. Yeah. But also sometimes I just fucking want some cotton candy. <laughs> <laughs> we'll say. I really enjoyed the first two seasons. I'm not looking forward to them trying to make me care about Colin. I like just have I have yet to care about Colin. I'm so here it's for Penelope. True, it's true. Can they recast him? <laughs> Wouldn't that be Becky? Anyway. Not all white men look the same. Yes, they do. You should hear Molly talking oh, about no, the shows. Or oh my god! I was making so okay. Much. I would just like to note yeah. that I was making fun of myself saying that because I straight up could <laughs> not tell white men apart. <laughs> I'm really good once I know somebody's face. Like, I could tell any, like, weird-ass actor in Hollywood apart, even though they all look identical. Oh, I can't. But whenever we're watching, like, an episode of Murder, she wrote, she and there's, like, realize three there's two different... people that are different people. And she's like, like, wait They're a both second. old white men. I'm like, sorry. I just, like, they're both old white men. I can't. There have been times when I've been out and about, and, like, I've seen someone on the street and been like, oh my gosh, is that my ex so-and-so? And then been like, oh no, that's just another generic-looking white man. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess, um... That kind of brings us to the end of what we were going to talk about this yeah. episode. Yeah. And next episode, we're, we're going to talk about the actual, like, two seasons <laughs> of Bridgerton. Yeah, so, you know, we'll get into, like, I think some of the specific scenes and specific things about that. I think we got a little bit into those, but we'll just... Yeah, we're going to do more of a deep dive instead of just kind of hopping yeah. all over. So, just a preemptive warning that there will be spoilers aplenty and you know thank you becky for joining us Thanks again for having me. it yeah. was really fun we always enjoy having you here <laughs> instead of just in the other room <laughs> listening <laughs> yeah that wraps up our yeah. episode for this week of truths universally acknowledged our no longer courtship recap pod <laughs> but instead just pod about the 19th century, pop culture, and today. Yeah. So follow us on Twitter at TruthsUniPod. That's Truths, plural, U-N-I-P-O-D. I have not been updating the Twitter very much, so sorry about that, but I'll try and get back on top of that. And you can follow my personal Twitter at M-J-K-E-R-A-N. And mine is at Chingona Academic. It's uh, C H I N G O N A C A D E M I C. Woo! I got through it. That's the max number of characters you can have on a Twitter. Really? <laughs> yeah, it is. That's why I couldn't put two A's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And Becky, uh, did you want to plug your I literally only retweet other people, but sure. It's uh, Hicks and Becky, H I X O N B E C K Y. And until next time. Toodaloo. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs>